Well, I'm really pleased to be here. It's really a pleasure to get a chance to talk with you about the Dharma. I thought I would talk, uh, when I started thinking about what I would talk about, I, I thought that I would like to talk about maps, because maps are just a great metaphor. Um, and they lead, the, contemplating maps leads in a lot of directions. And one of the things that I realized right away is that there's a whole new kind of map. Um, which I hadn't even, I initially think of, you know, road maps and atlases and things like that. But you know those GPS things that sit in your car? Um, those are maps too, and they're pretty interesting. I discovered them uh, with a rent, probably a bunch of you have already got them in your cars. I discovered them on a rent-a-car when I had to get from Newark, the airport at Newark, to uh, the study center at Barrie. And boy, I hadn't, I don't know the East Coast at all. But the thing guided me there was just great. But I had no idea where I went. You know, <laughs> it, it, it gives you a little map that's about this big where you can't see anything. And then it tells you, turn left, turn right, bear left, you know. And the next thing, then here you are. So it's an interesting kind of map. Um, we drove back from the study center. The car was full of people. We were going to the airport. And the, the map was telling us the map. Uh, <laughs> whatever you want to call her, Linda, um, <laughs> was telling us, you know, turn left, turn right. And the signs were saying over, you know, uh, Logan Airport this way. And she was saying, go straight. So it was an issue of, you know, <laughs> do, do you believe this thing? Um, and actually, at the, at, by the end, we got there, no problem. Um, and so I, I started, I've gotten into the habit of using them when I go, when I rent cars. I went to visit a, a friend in um, Morency, Arizona. Does anybody know where that is? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a mining town in eastern Arizona. It's not, it's not a mining town like in, you know, western mining, Deadwood mining. It, this is a mining town that uses more electricity than the city of Tucson. It's huge. And so I'm driving across the, the desert on, you know, I'm driving along. And all of a sudden, the map tells me, please proceed to the designated route. And I look down, and it's got me in the middle of the desert. I'm on the road, clearly, I thought. You know, as I, the lanes were there. But on the map, I was off in the middle of the desert, which I thought at the time, I thought this is a great illustration of, of the uh, the the first proposition from general semantics, which is the map is not the territory. Um, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about maps because um, we rely on maps a lot. We use them a lot. And even though we haven't been to a lot of the places that the maps describe, um, we believe they're there. You know, we have faith in the map makers. Anybody been to Timbuktu? You know, but if, but if you look at the map of, you know, there there it is in Africa. It's we sort of believe it's there, you know, because we've used maps and we know how they work and um, and they they uh, they they describe the world. They hold the world for us. Our image of of where things are and what the, what they. Uh, how to, how to go about getting there. Um, one thing about maps that's interesting, I, 
I think of uh, the maps that Christopher Columbus used or, you know, where, where the edge of the world and then, you know, what was it, a dragon or who knows what it was or the, the, the maps of Africa where they had the coastline and then the, who knew what was in there, you know. Well, the maps, the conceptual maps that we use uh, that we use to describe for ourselves the universe and our place in it and our understanding of what we're doing and how we're going. There are those places for us too, uh, terra incognita. And a lot of them, you know, the sailors didn't even want to go and look over the edge of the world. Um, and we've got those places too that we don't want to actually go and look at. So I'll, I'll get to those places in a little bit because those are actually pretty interesting. Um, and they are, uh, they're, they're potentially alive for us. Now the, the, the maps uh, that we use to describe our practice and what we're doing here um, are maps that the Buddha uh, basically provided for us. And there are lots of them. Um, and they're in all kinds of levels of complexity and detail. So the simplest one might be the one that's contained in the Dhammapada, which is do good, avoid evil, and cultivate the mind, which is pretty, pretty basic. Um, it, in, it includes instructions. It's like I, I, call the, I call the voice on the little... GPS device, Linda, um, and you know, these is, these are instructions. Not only not only a description of of the arena of our of our consciousness and perceptions, but also the instructions uh, for ending suffering in our experience. Um, the the eightfold path. Uh, is also a set of instructions, and the and the four noble truths, uh, the truth of the existence of suffering and unsatisfactoriness, and that the cause of unsatisfactoriness is in our craving uh, to have things different from they are, and that there is relief possible. Um, this is this is a map, and it includes the instructions, which, uh, like Linda is telling you, which way to to turn and which way to go. Um, the map and the instructions can get, as I say, pretty complex. For lay people, um, the map was pretty, and, and the, the map and the instructions were pretty simple in, in Asia. They were to, um, uh, towards faith, the practice of faith, virtue, and generosity. And those were the, the practices of uh, lay people. Now, here in the West, when we grab onto the practice, we're also grabbing onto some monastic practices, too, um, which, which creates the need for some new maps. Um, but the, uh, the notion of faith, uh, virtue, and generosity, interestingly, is also. Um, a description of the destination for the awakened being. This summer on, on retreat, Mary Orr introduced 
me or pointed pointed out one of the suttas in the um, Anguttara Nikaya on the dwelling places of a of a noble one, of one who was awakened. And there were, it's in the book of sixes. So there's six of these critters that uh, uh, are identified as, well, that's where we get if we, if we get there, um, or what we're heading towards. Um, and, and they actually fall in, into, the first five anyway, fall into faith, virtue, and generosity. The, the first, the first of the, the first of the elements is the recollection. The, the noble one dwells, recalling the Buddha. Um, the Buddha as um, an awakened one, as the awakened one, and just contemplating um, the Buddha's achievement. As we understand it, each of us probably has a slightly different notion. We have a little, a different map, a different story, an account of what the Buddha accomplished. Um, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are considered the, are described as the, the three refuges or the triple gem of Buddhist practice. The Buddha as a refuge is the notion that the refuge is the notion that relief is possible. Now, the Buddha said, if it weren't possible to free yourself from suffering, I wouldn't urge you to do it. And to the extent that we understand uh, what he did or how the understanding we have of what he accomplished, he never claimed to be anything but a person like like us. So the possibility is there is there for us as well. So that that's the f- the first element uh, in 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 this uh, this map. The second is the noble th- disciple recollects the dhamma. Um, the dhamma is well expounded by the blessed one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, worthy of application to be personally experienced by the wise. This is the second, the second element in this, on this map. The, um, this is clearly the map. This is the dharma. This is the teachings of the Buddha, which include not just the description and the you know the Buddha's description of our of our experience is in incredible detail, um, and, and you can you can explore uh, your own experience using the Buddha's guide to the kinds of things that that will appear in our experience um, as a refuge. The Dharma is that there is is a path. There is a way to get. This isn't just an accident of grace. This is something that can be practiced. It's described as a skill. You know, the practice is is described as a skill, which means that if you work at it, you can get. It's like it's like learning to play an instrument or a sport or learn a language. It's something that we work at, and we can we can get better at. Um, but this is really 
both a map and and the description of the uh, instructions. And it includes, of course, the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The Sangha is the third of the, of the refuges, and it's the third of the um, elements in this, in this sutta uh, on, on the dwelling of, of a noble one. The noble disciple recollects the Sangha uh, in this way. The Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is practicing the good way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals, worthy of gifts, gifts, etc. And the Sangha becomes a focus of contemplation. And the Buddha said, you know, um, the Sangha is important because I'm in the Sangha. And you come to um, uh, the knowledge of the end of suffering through my teaching um, and through the support of the of the others in the sangha. Now, there you know, there's a lot of discussion about what this concept actually means. So there are there are descriptions of the sangha being um, the collection of awakened disciples of the Buddha. And then there are descriptions of the Sangha that include the collection of uh, monks and nuns in robes. And then there's the notion of Sangha as in, as in this group here, which is the people who are, who are practicing uh, in, a, in a lay context um, the, the path that the Buddha described. Um, and I, I guess personally, I'm, I've got enough social scientist in me that I include all cultural artifacts like the books, and you know the the uh, the sangha is the the culture of awakening. It's what what inspire what what uh, guides us in the path. The refuge here is that the path of awakening is through the sangha. So faith in the Buddha, faith in the Dharma, faith in the sangha. This is you know. We don't know the Buddha. We haven't been to Timbuktu. But when we practice, it's like using a map to get to Oakland. We, we know the maps of Oakland. We've been there. Uh, we've experienced the hindrances. Um, we, can, uh, we can spot them when they show up. Um, you know, we know the Buddha's maps uh, to the extent that we've explored them, you know, my experience anyway is that uh, they're, they're accurate. Um, so faith, faith, virtue, and generosity, faith includes those first three elements, faith in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and the Sangha. Virtue is interesting. It's the next of the, of the elements. Uh, the noble disciple recollects his own virtues thus. Um, I possess virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unmodeled, freeing, praised by the wise, unadhered to. I, I like that one. And leading to concentration. You know, virtue um, 
is interesting. There's uh, uh, as as a, an element on the on the path because there's a story that I've actually heard told two ways. Somebody um, comes to the Buddha and says, "How come?" all these people are hanging around and so few of them have, have awakened. And in one version of the story, the Buddha asks, well, in both versions, the Buddha asks, where are you from? And in one version that I've, I've seen, the, the questioner says, I'm from Gaia. And another one says, I'm from uh, Rajagaha. So I don't know where he actually was from, but let's say he was from Gaia. He says, where are you from? And the guy says, from Gaia. And he says, and you know how to get there, right? And he says, yeah, I, I do. He says, well, do people ever ask you directions to get there? And he says, well, yeah. And do all of those people get there? Well, he says, the ones that set out and go. He says, just, just so. Um, the Buddha said, I, I have uh, achieved awakening. And I understand the path to awakening, and I describe it to anyone who asks. It's not a secret. But only those people who actually set out on the path get there. So you can look at your maps all you want. Studying the maps is not the same as, as uh, following along the path. And so um, the practice of virtue is And a central part of the, the path. You know, the line in the Metta Sutta, skilled in goodness. Um, so it should be done by those who are skilled in goodness. And the skill, you know, it's a skill. It's a practice that we develop uh, as, we, as we practice it. So there's a, there's a real difference between um, looking at the map and practicing uh, practicing. Um, let me just say a couple things about the practice of, of virtue of sila in the Buddha's uh, in the Buddha's um, scenario, because we are so conditioned to the notion of commandments in our culture that it's it's difficult frequently and takes it took me a while to even figure out uh, that the precepts uh, were not commandments in the same sense that we understand them. The precepts that the Buddha described when asked how a lay follower um, could practice, the Buddha said, uh, described five, initially four, and then five uh, practices. And they're practices. The first is, is not to take life and the second is not to take what is not freely given or to steal. The third is not to um, indulge in sexuality, which is harmful. The fourth is not to speak uh, falsely. And the fifth is not to um, use drugs or alcohol. I guess he didn't talk about drugs. He talked about alcohol uh, to the point of heedlessness, to the point where it enhances our delusions because um, we already got plenty of those. Um, and these are practices. They're not commandments. And you know, there's a real difference between 
between the two because there's different intentions behind them. The, the purpose of, of practicing a precept is to come to the end of suffering, to relieve the unsatisfactory experience in our lives. And the purpose, the intention behind judgment, well, there's a number of them that I can identify, and you, know, you might be able to identify some before they stake out the, the behavior that you're supposed to follow. Um, and then they affirm the uh, righteous judgment of the one making the pronouncement. So there's a social control kind of thing. And there's also this selfing business that you do. Uh, you know, thou shalt not, you know, and someone, they, it sort of depends on someone somewhere making a list and checking it twice. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a very different, uh, it's a very different relationship to the, to the, notion of virtue one is it's a it's a skill to cultivate um, it's about and it's about intention not about um, judgment so it's about about the intention in fact there there are uh, stories where uh, in the in the suttas where uh, individuals um, perfect their their virtue on their deathbed, even before they get a chance to do anything. So it's an action of the heart. It's an intention of the heart. Um, and that those intentions, uh, as I say, are different between a commandment and a, and a precept. Um, precepts, you know, I, I think Tom Jeff was here talking about the precepts and he identified I found interesting. I identified four different levels of um, intention in the precepts. The first five precepts are about uh, that lay people practice. The intention uh, is towards non-harming, not harming ourselves and not harming harming others. Um, The second level there, there are uh, some additional precepts which are often observed or practiced by lay people on uh, ritual days associated with uh, the phases of the moon in Asia or which you can uh, adopt during uh, periods of retreat. Um, they include not most primarily not eating afternoon uh, which is uh, one of the one of the practices that uh, monastics take, not in not uh, partaking of um, entertainment or self-adornment distractions, and and the eighth one, which is my favorite, is not to sleep on high beds. Um, I I don't know how high is high, but. No, no sleeping on high beds. And this is non-indulgence basically in, in sense pleasures, particularly the one dealing with, with eating afternoon um, and, and the ones about uh, entertainment. The third level is a monastic standard and relates to the 
200 plus precepts that monastics follow. And, and these precepts include things like the way you hang your robe up, you've got to have the edge of the robe facing the wall and not facing out. I mean, you basically don't have a lot of choice about a, a lot of what you do and the way you do it. So this third level of precept uh, practice is about um, not indulging in one's own preferences. And this is a monastic standard. It's pretty, it's pretty um, restrictive. It's pretty tight. And we would have huge... We don't even realize how much our preference... You know, we, we, the radio is playing so we don't like it. We hit the other button and... Uh, you know, we can even we can even walk around wired into our iPods or whatever, so that that the that the audio environment that we prefer becomes the audio environment. We our preferences become you know, huge. Well, the idea here is to is to restrain um, our indulgence. And as I say, this is a monastic standard. The last level is interesting, and this is also a monastic standard. There are only a few things that can get you expelled from the monastic orders, um, never to return during the current life anyway. Um, One is is, um, killing another person. Uh, This is for monastics. Killing a person, uh, engaging in uh, sex with a person. Um, And... Um, the third, well, I, the third is, um, <laughs> I was wondering whether to talk about the animals. The, um, the third is uh, um, not, not to misrepresent your level of spiritual attainment because the idea here is that you would be um, disrupting the faith of others. So the monastics... Um, those are four different levels of, of, of intensity of, of uh, uh, practice, intention in the practice. But the value of, of, of virtue lies in um, the practice and not just in reading the map. The next of the, the items is generosity. And it's the, it's the fifth of the items here. And generosity, uh, dana, um, the noble disciple relects, uh, recollects his own generosity. Uh, thus, it's a gain for me, it is well gained by me, that in a generation obsessed by the stain of stinginess, I dwell at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, Delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighted in giving and sharing. Generosity is interesting in the lay context in Asia. Um, Generosity almost immediately means generosity towards the monastics. Um, And it it is a practice, it's a training. Children from infancy, just about, as soon as... You know, they'll put a ball of rice in the hand and shake it over the, the begging bowl so that the practice of generosity towards the monastics is um, taught from a very early age. I don't think 
there's any equivalent teaching that we have that I know of. Um, there's not a lot of formal dana practice, even in our even our tradition. We become aware of it and we talk about it. Um, You know, there, there's not a lot of formal practice like there an instruction uh, like there is with uh, vipassana uh, insight practice or metta practice. Um, you know, there's some hints and suggestions. Sharon Salzberg, for example, recommends that when you have a generous impulse, that you act out on it, even though there may be second thoughts. Now, if those second thoughts are clearly wise thoughts, like don't give away everything you own <laughs> um, out, of, out of a whim. Um, so if there, you know, it needs to be tempered by wisdom, but the, the idea is to, to act on generous impulses. Um, boy, it's not a, it's not a, a rigorous practice like You know, metta or or vipassana. The last of the the last of the items is um, is interesting. We're we're going to move out. We're going to move into terra incognita here. The the sixth item is uh, a noble disciple develops the recollection of the devas. The devas are probably the equivalent of angels, but they're also earth spirits of various kinds. Uh, they re- recollect the, the recollection of the devas thus. There are devas in the heaven of the four great kings, Tavatimsa devas, Yama devas, Tusita devas, devas who delight in creation, devas who control what is created by others, devas of Brahma's company, and devas still higher than these. There is found in me such faith as those devas possessed because of which when they passed away from this world, they were reborn there. How do we hold that? What do we think of that? There's a whole realm of the Buddha's teaching. Now, we don't see Davis here. I don't. Uh, if, if you do, um, come see me right after. Um, now, how do, we, how do we hold that? Now, because we don't see him doesn't, you know, if you go out to your car and you turn on the, the radio and you try to tune in the BBC, you're probably not going to get it. I mean, it's not on the AM band. And you switch to the FM band, it's not on the FM band. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that the band that we're tuning to is not the band that, that uh, it's being broadcast on. And we've got five senses and our mind. And so we, we pick up a fairly limited range of reality. I'm, I'm working with, I have a dog who's uh, a scent hound. And to train the dog, uh, it's really fun, but it's to train the dog to follow a scent is tricky because dogs have a sense of humor and they, and they, and they are willing to lie. <laughs> really, you know. Um, so how do you know? I mean, if you, if you actually lay down a scent, drag something through through a field, you know whether the dog is, you know, being honest. But 
um, if you're asking this animal to track something else, like find Billy or whatever, I, I have no idea. There's a huge range of experience that's not available to us, of the, of the universe that's not available to us. Now, how do we hold the notion of Davis? We often just sort of write it off. The concept of that the, the Buddha talks about upon the breakup of the body, uh, we find rebirth in a different realm. How do we hold that? The concept of multiple lifetimes. You know, we just we sort of leave it. The Buddha said the night of his awakening. Remember what, what he did the night of his awakening? There were three watches to the night. He described what happened to the first part of the night. The first part of the night, he recalled his past lives in incredible detail. I lived here, I was in this clan, I died this way. He recalled his past lives. Is he just filling dead time here? Or, you know, what is our understanding of the Buddha and how do we hold that? The second watch of the night was he saw the coming and going of beings according to their karma. What do we make of that? This is, you know, this is off the, this is the center of Africa there. This is terra incognita. And, you know, there are descriptions of all kinds of psychic powers that are, that are described that the Buddha, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the Pali Canon. And those of us practicing in the West for whom these notions are a little foreign, uh, often discount them by saying, well, it worked in that culture. He was just addressing the culture. You know. um, and it doesn't make any difference. Let me just, let me just suggest um, a way in which it might make a difference. If you understand if the story, the map that you hold about what we're doing here and our lives here, if, if that understanding is this is the life we've got and we look at the way we're practicing and the pace at which we're practicing and the pace of progress, we can say, I'm, gonna, I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to work. As, I'm going to do the best I can I'll, towards the reduction of suffering for myself and others. I'll do everything I can think of. But if your orientation is towards this one life, it's difficult to avoid being worldly in, in the, the elements that are important. And the best I can is sort of a wish. I wish it's an intention um, to try hard. It's a wish. But there's a difference between a wish and a resolve. You know, I, could, I wish I could lose 10 pounds is very different than I, I'm not. They're gone. It may take me, you know, I don't know how long does it take to lose 10 pounds, but they're, I, you know, a resolve. I'm, it's different to resolve to be on a diet than to wish you could lose a little weight or to wish you could quit smoking and to just not smoke. If your concept is, if the map in which you hold your practice and your life is one of multiple lifetimes, then you can say, I am resolved. I am going to fully awaken no matter how many lifetimes it takes. 
And that's a different order of resolve. It's a different order of intention. And it can make a difference to the way you address your practice. So the, 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 the consequences of the maps that we use can be significant. Um, it makes a difference what you think. It makes a difference um, you know, how we understand the maps that we use to orient ourselves. The maps, interestingly, the, you know, there's, a, there's a Zen phrase. Um, Zen is a finger pointing to the moon. And of course, the tragedy is to mistake the finger for the moon. And that's what fundamentalists do. You know, we have a map, we have a description pointing the way to the end of suffering. And if we clutch at the description, at the map, at the finger, we, we lose the chance to directly address our experience. Um, so let me just close by uh, reflecting on the nature of, of the journey uh, the map, the maps that we're using, and that there's there are more things than heaven and earth. Uh, so let me thank you for your attention and invite any questions. I don't know how much time we have for questions. I'm told I have I have a, a shaking head, but um, so I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> Afterwards, okay. So I want to thank you all for your attention. <laughs>